You are listening to the Dr. Michelle Corral Show. It is our prayer that as you listen to these podcasts, that you will receive your deliverance, breakthrough, anointing, and highest destiny. Our prayer is that your love for Jesus Christ be first in your life above all things. Now, here's Dr. Corral. Dear people of God, tonight we want to speak to you about the subject, Mistakes into Miracles. Tonight we are bringing you this um, word from the Lord that I believe God has for you tonight, how God is a God who can turn your mistake into a miracle. Amen. And how God will also bring you divine compensation in the midst or in no matter what you're going through, you will receive divine compensation for all the devastation in your life. Amen. And let us look just for a moment before we actually look at what it means to have a mistake turned into a miracle. I want you to see, dear people of God, that today, just by definition, we're going to give you a, just a definition of what a mistake is. So many of us have made mistakes in our lives. We make mistakes all the time, from little mistakes to big mistakes. We can make a mistake just by maybe copying something wrong, just little minor mistakes. Or maybe we got the time wrong on something. That could be a big mistake. But then there are other types of mistakes that we make that affect our lives in a major way. And uh, a mistake is actually given by definition um, that it is an action or a judgment with a misguided or wrong thought. And we all experience various types of mistakes. And uh, sometimes, especially if we have been a high achiever in life, and things that we work really hard on. We can be really hard on ourselves when we make a mistake, all right? Some of us can be so hard on ourselves when we want to try to achieve high levels of success. And the, the fact that we make a mistake can actually lead to various types of anxiety in our lives because we made that mistake. Sometimes mistakes can be seen in the form of, um, if I only would not have allowed that in my life, if I would have known better. Or sometimes we find ourselves saying, if I could have only said something. Or sometimes that mistake comes by way of, if I only knew what was going to happen, I would have never chosen that decision. So mistakes come in various forms. But I want you to know something. We serve a God who is able to take our mistake and turn it into a miracle. And tonight I'm here to, to tell you that the God that we serve is a God who will turn your mistake into a miracle. Let's raise our hand toward heaven right now and say this with me, wonderful Jesus. I want to give you praise because no matter what mistakes I've made in life, you are the God who can turn my mistake into a miracle. Can we give God the praise and give God the glory? Hallelujah. One of the greatest examples of how the Bible teaches us that we serve a God who turns our mistakes into miracles is in the life of Naomi. Naomi really is one of the key figures in the book of Ruth. You may be saying, Dr. Corral, why are you reading the book of Ruth right now? I thought that it was Pentecost coming up. 
And as a preparation for Pentecost, we're going to show you from God's scripture that Ruth and Naomi actually returned back to the Holy Land and came from the country of Moab at the time of the beginning of the barley harvest, which is during these 49 days of destiny. And things completely shifted in their lives during the time of the first fruits and during the time of Pentecost. And I believe that just as God shifted Ruth's life and Naomi's life at the time of Pentecost, so is God going to give you some divine compensation for all your devastation. The Holy Spirit is the comforter and he is about to give you a divine turnaround. Hallelujah. In a supernatural sense of scripture, I want us to go to Ruth chapter 1. And we're going to see that there is actually what I call a supernatural structure laid out in the book of Ruth that begins with the narrative. And we need to understand something about narratives. Narratives are not put in the Bible just so we know something happened. We know that the Bible is a book that teaches us about everything we need in life. And with this narrative, we're going to see that there is an intention that the author has to contrast character traits that God uses with character traits that God refuses. Say this with me. Character traits that God uses and character traits that God refuses. Okay, this is the central theme of Ruth chapter 1. And we're going to see this theme continued throughout the book of Ruth. And this theme is done by contrasting persons in the book of Ruth who have despicable character traits and who actually lost their destinies based on their character traits. And then we're going to see a life as the Spirit of God would permit throughout these next few weeks, we will see a life that when there is character traits that God uses, then there are character traits of kindness and character traits of mercy and character traits that God wants all of us during these 49 days of destiny to seek God for. Then we will see that doors of destiny and, and we will actually see God begin to reverse the curse in our own life. We will see him reverse the adverse when we begin to change from the inside out. Amen. All right. So I want you to see in Ruth chapter one, this unique contrast in the context. And this unique contrast in the context coheres with the theme, the qualification for exaltation into destiny. How many people here today want to believe God for the qualification for exaltation into destiny? You say, God, I want to be qualified for the next level of destiny. Well, let me tell you something. Destiny doesn't come cheap. Salvation is free. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is free, but destiny, there has to be a price paid for it. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. You have to be willing to pay the price, and that price is oftentimes equated through our character. 
All right, we have to make choices. And here we are going to see, as the Bible always does, gives us a resume that qualifies someone for greatness. Put your hands up right now and say, Holy Spirit, tonight, I ask you to begin to reconstruct my resume and put on my resume all of the qualifications for exaltation into the next level. I want to go high. I want everything that God's got for me. I do not want to be denied destiny. I've come too far to be denied destiny now. Somebody ought to say, I've already paid a price and I don't feel like going back and I want to now Go forward because I don't want to be denied destiny. Hallelujah. Say this with me. The qualification for exaltation into destiny is character trait. Hallelujah. All right. Well, I want to begin this as we look at Ruth chapter 1. We're going to look at one letter. And we're going to see the letter in Hebrew that the book of Ruth begins with. As so many books in the Bible do begin, not all, but many of the books in the Bible begin with the conjunctive Bob. And we are going to see here that in Ruth chapter 1, we are going to see that there is a conjunctive Bob that begins the entire narrative. And this conjunctive Bob is very important. What is a Bob? A Bob is a letter in the Hebrew alphabet that especially when a book begins with a Bob, it means that you are to interpret the narrative that you are reading and the book that you are reading in the context of the previous book. That means when there is a Bob at the beginning of a book, it means that it doesn't begin insular. It doesn't begin on its own. It's not a separate entity. It means that this book is related to the book before and that you cannot interpret the book of Ruth without the lens of understanding the book of Judges. And there are certain themes in the book of Judges that the author insists that we know in order to interpret the book of Ruth. And so therefore, we must interpret the book of Ruth through the lens of the book of Judges. And the primary theme in the book of Judges is found in Judges chapter 17, verse 26, and Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And the Bible says, man, hallelujah, did what was right in their own eyes. The Bible says there was no king in the land, and in those days there was there was no king in the land of Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. The Bible wants us to be aware that in the era of the judges, man was making decisions on his own that he believed to be right decisions. Decisions that were not necessarily wrong from the outward standpoint of the way that you look at it, but they were not based on biblical values. I want to tell you what this actually means. Say this with me. In those days, in the land, there was no king in the land. And man, every man, did what was right in his own eyes. 
It didn't say some men, it said every man. So we are dealing with a culture in the time of the judges where anything goes. We also are dealing in the time of the judges a people that are not being governed in unity. Everybody's doing their own thing. But most of all, we have a people that are not being governed by the word of God. We are having people that are being governed by their senses, by what they think is right, by the way they feel, that they feel led to do something, or they feel impressed to do something that may not necessarily correspond with what what God wants. I want us to look at this a little further. Every man did what was right in their own eyes as compared to doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. There is a difference between doing what is right in your own eyes and doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord has to do with a conscientious uh, ability to scrutinize one's intentions. That means when someone is uh, conscious of doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord, they're going to have their intentionality skills really um, accelerated. This means they're not going to go and say things that are inappropriate because they want to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. They're not going to have behavior that's inappropriate because they know the Lord is seeing everything. They want to do what is right in the sight of the Lord. You see, doing what is right in the sight of the Lord, one has an automatic mindset, an automatic constant mindset that God is watching everything I do and God is watching everything that comes out of my mouth. Whether we want to recognize it or not, there is a difference between man doing what is right in his own eyes and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. And tonight, the Bible wants to make this a clear lens by which we interpret the book of Ruth because there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Can I get a witness somewhere? Proverbs 14 verse 12 tells us, that there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is death. And that's exactly what happened to Elimelech. We just read it a moment ago. It seemed right to him. There didn't seem to be anything wrong with the time of famine, with leaving the country and taking your two sons and your wife out of the country and living and sojourning in the country of Moab. It didn't seem to be wrong, but I want you to understand that the Bible is going to go deeper because in the sight of the Lord, there was intentionality there that was absolutely wrong and it was displeasing to God. And we are going to look at it because the Bible is going to contrast the character traits of Elimelech, who was a judge in Israel and a Bible scholar compared to someone who came from Moab and came to live in the land of Israel who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Can I get a witness somewhere? 
would say get ready for Pentecost by being sensitive to your own heart and not grieving the Holy Spirit by thoughts, words, or actions. Can I get a witness somewhere? Hello, somebody. Can I get a witness? All right. If we look at Judges 1.1, let's look at it. Now, we understand the lens by which the scripture is requiring that we interpret it through the above that it is connected to the book of Judges. And we saw from two primary passages from Judges chapter 17 and from Judges 21 verse 25 that every man did, there was no king in the land. And every man did what was right in the sight of the Lord. What does a king have to do with man doing what is right in the sight of the Lord? Or what does a king have to do with how is a king going to prevent every man from doing what is right in his own eyes? All right, for a moment, we need to understand the whole system and purpose of a king. Okay, if we go to Deuteronomy chapter 16, the Bible is going to teach us the purpose of the kings of Israel. The Bible is going to dedicate an entire, an entire passage of teaching Israel before they enter into the land of promise, that in the future there will be kings. And in the future, this is how the kings are to live. The kings are not to make themselves famous. The kings, there's going to be laws, which we will not get into tonight, but I will paraphrase it. There will be laws set up in Parsha Shoftim, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, which are going to prohibit kings from having multiple wives, okay? In other words, um, the, the kings oftentimes had wives, multiple wives, but they were affinity relationships that, that really were only for the sense of conquering a nation, and they were political they were actual political contracts between nations, and the contracts were sealed through affinity marriages. All right? This is what happened with Ahab and Jezebel. It was an affinity contract. All right? The father of Ahab made a contract with the father of Jezebel, and there was an affinity marriage for political convenience. All right? And sometimes this was necessary in Israel. However, King David had the very minimal amount. In those days, they did allow other wives. Um, now, of course, it's pro prohibited, absolutely. But in ancient biblical times, there were instances, and David adhered to that law perfectly, all right? He only had minimal, and, but Solomon completely abused it. And the purpose of that, God set that law up in the Torah, was so that the king would never allow the wives to distract them from serving God and having God as the center. All right? We also saw that in Deuteronomy 16 that the law requires that the kings of Israel would not be, have multiple horses and chariots, that they would not... Um, heap unto themselves personal possessions and that they would not have multiple well, uh, personal possessions, not multiple horses, only what they needed, 
all right? This was a requirement in the law, all right? Enough to give God glory and enough to show the beauty and the wealth that God was bringing into the nation, but not to um, heap unto themselves riches. And it was prohibited for the kings of Israel to heap unto themselves silver and gold, all right? This is a very strict law that God commanded before there was ever a king. Let's look at it just for a moment because we're going to see the King David adhered to all of these laws perfectly. And this was because God always wanted to establish in the nation of Israel a brotherhood. The king had to consider his subjects brethren. All right, God ordained that the kings of Israel would be able to run the country, but that everyone would have a sense of what we call our avut. And this is extremely important for us to know. And as a matter of fact, it was required. Please understand there was no printing press in the times of the Bible, but God commanded that the king of Israel would himself write an entire Torah out and that that Torah would be carried with him wherever he went. So that meant that when he sat on the throne, next to his throne would be an entire Torah and that whenever he went to war, one of his horses or the men with him would have to carry the Torah scroll with him. He would never be allowed to go anywhere without the Torah scroll. He would learn to read it, to meditate upon it. Why? Because God was saying, this is not like another country. This is a country that's going to be governed by my word and by my righteousness and by my laws. Can I get a witness somewhere? All right, let's look at this just for a moment. Believe me, I would not be doing this if the Holy Ghost didn't tell me this is part of the lesson, okay? Because in the natural mind, it doesn't seem logical that God would add such a portion to tonight's teaching, but God wants it in. He wants us to understand values. We are living in a generation that is slowly losing. It is degrading. It is, there is a disintegration of family values. There is a disintegration of values even in the church, one for another. There is a disintegration of responsibility that we have toward one another. So God wants us to reestablish what he has written in his word. I hope you understand what I'm talking about here. All right, Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14, says that when you are coming to the land which the Lord your God gives you to possess it, you shall dwell therein, and you shall say, I will set a king over me like the other nations that are round about me. Now we're going to skip from verse 14 down to verse 18. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this Torah out of the book of that which is before the Levites and the priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and to keep all the words of this Torah and the statutes, hallelujah, to do them that his heart not be lifted up against or over his brethren. 
Wow. God is saying, if there's going to be position, and I'm going to bless you with rulership, and I'm going to bless you with a title like a king, then there's going to be a responsibility behind that position. It is not a free-for-all, and God is prohibiting it from being just something that one is going to use in a licentious way to heap upon themselves unmet needs in their lives, to, to heap them upon themselves for narcissistic purposes. Can I get a witness somewhere? Put your hands up right now and say, God, in the name of Jesus, you are preparing me for rulership in the end times. And God, I want to be trusted with greater levels of leadership. Say this with me, Father God, I want to be trusted with more ministry, with more responsibility, with more anointing, with more position, with more influence. But I have to come to the understanding that it's not about me. And I have to come to the understanding that the higher I go, the more humble I must be in the name of Jesus. Can I get a witness somewhere? about me can't be reckless leadership and the book of Ruth begins teaching us about reckless leadership reckless leadership that doesn't have a clue that that leadership is being given for the benefit of others it is not just a leadership that entitles one to special privileges and to live a privileged life okay leadership is about the biblical standard of leadership is that when one is given a great responsibility to that one, there is a great requirement, not just in works and not just in doing the job well, but most of what this is teaching here is about accountability on inward on one's inward attitude and what one inwardly does to manage emotions that can get out of control, okay? Managing emotions of pride and managing emotions of self-esteem of self and managing emotions of narcissism. Hello, somebody, can I get a witness? Managing emotions of selfishness and self-centeredness. The Bible is teaching us that it's not a free-for-all. We have to be responsible enough that if God is going to entrust to us certain positions, that we have to maintain a level of humility, maintain a tremendous level of awareness of other people's needs, and realize it's not about all about me. Okay, this is, this is the, one of the main themes of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. If you were to study leaders and the success secrets of biblical leaders that had great success, you will understand there is an altruistic side of leadership 
altruistic side of leadership that leads the leaders to be selfless. Those are the leaders God is choosing. This is the difference between Abraham and those who were tower builders. Okay, why is the Tower of Babel introduced in chapter 11 before we even meet Abraham in chapter 12? Because the context is going to contrast what it means to be a tower builder. The people of the Tower of Babel had one agenda and one agenda only. Let us make a name for ourselves. And God, Abraham was completely the different. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great because your agenda is to make my name great. Hello, somebody. Can I get a witness? So the scripture is going to show us here of, uh, these values, magnanimity and um and altruistic values that God wants us to have in our hearts as leaders. This is why the Bible says, I love this verse in verse 20. The Bible says here, the Bible says, that his heart not be lifted up above his brethren. So God is saying the king of Israel cannot think of himself as better than his brethren. And he's got to work on it. He's got to set himself a standard. And do you know something? The person that did this perfectly, besides we, we have Hezekiah, he did it pretty well, but he, he lost management of his emotions in the end of his reign. And the Bible says he showed off all of his riches to his enemies. And as a result, he opened a door. And that was a door that uh, he's showing his riches to his enemies and he's showing them to the surrounding nations, but within a few years, all of those riches that he's showing everybody are going to be taken to Babylon. He opened a door with his own choice to show off his riches. But the person who managed his emotions in terms of his pride and in terms of always staying humble and staying as one of the people yet maintaining that sense of leadership and authority without weakness because meekness should never be mistaken as weakness was King David. King David surrounded himself with prophets not to tell him how good he was. He surrounded himself with prophets that had permission to correct him many times. And so Gad was a personal seer of King David and came and had permission to tell him when you're off, and this didn't mean, uh, oftentimes, these times when King David was off was not public news. It was secret, only between him and the Lord. And we also see it happening with Nathan, all right? He surrounded himself to keep himself in constant check. Okay, we may not have personal prophets that are around us to keep us in constant check, but do we have self-scrutiny skills? Does our conscience work enough within us to tell us, you know what, you're abusing this power or you're abusing this leadership in some way. You are not allowing these leadership skills. You're not allowing yourself to be the servant of all because kingdom leadership involves servant the greatest of all is the servant of all. I can't get any help in here tonight. All right. 
so we see this in the book of Ruth. This is the lens by which, the background by which we, do, we are to approach chapter one. Okay, so this above connects us to the fact that there was no king in the land and every man did what was right in his own eyes. All right, Judges chapter one says, and it came to pass in those days that when the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land and there was a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, that went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now watch this in verse two. And the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion. This sounds a little strange. Why doesn't it just say, and the name of his husband, of his wife, and his two sons were? But scripture keeps repeating this word, the name. Okay, it says, the name of the man was Elimelech. Then it says, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Okay, this is done deliberately by the scripture. It is a use of words in a superfluous sense. And this is done on purpose by scripture because scripture wants you to know that there's going to be a whammy in the names. Okay, the names are going to be changed to set the spiritual temperature so that we understand that in those names, we're going to see a strong default of leadership and responsibility toward one's fellow man and how one is going to respond in a time of crisis. You see, your true leadership skills come forward when there is a famine, when there is lack, when the body of Christ is in need. It's not all about me. It's when there is a need in the body, when there is someone who is needed to give something where other people have defaulted or when the enemy has come in and attacked God's people. What do we do? Do we hightail it to Moab with our family or are we so insular that we only care about me, myself, and I and my projects or are we fully aware of what is happening in our midst because it doesn't affect us then we think we're somehow not responsible for it but God is saying we are responsible we are our brother's keeper can I get a witness somewhere say we are responsible okay so doesn't mean well I'm I got I got all this stuff going on in my life and I really don't need to know about that right now okay well we're out sipping our lemonade with a little umbrella on it Hawaiian music in the background and our hammock okay we have it all laid out when God is saying, when there's something going on with the people of God, this is the time that God requires that the people do not hightail it to Moab. This is the time that God says the leaders need to have their feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and be ready instant in season and out of season to show their responsibility toward the work of God. Somewhere. 
names. Okay, the Bible tells us here. Obviously, Naomi, her name is not changed. Naomi means pleasant one, or you can also say the desire. She's a desirable one, okay? And then we're going to see Elimelech. This is definitely, we don't know if that's his real name or not. Because Elimelech means let kingship come to me. So selfishness. I'm the king, okay? And then what's even more puzzling is the name of the two sons, Malon and Kilion. Okay, Malon in Hebrew means sickness. So you're going to name your child sickness? You're going to say, come here, little sickness. How are you today? Okay, come here, little, come here, little um, sickness. It's your birthday. I don't think so. No mother's going to name their child sickness. Okay, the name of the other son was Kilion. Kilion means extinction. So the mother is not going to say, come here, little extinction. Let's have a little birthday party for you tonight. Okay, I don't think so. Okay, these names are changed deliberately, and this is demonstrated in the text that we are to pay attention to these names. This is why the name is mentioned three times. It is used in a superfluous sense because the scriptures want us to pay attention to the word name. So in verse 3, we have this use, or in verse 2, we have the use of the word name three times, and we should understand it. So sickness, malon, means sickness. Kilion means extinction. So that we are to understand that the names are definitely a source of the way that we interpret the events that are going on in Ruth chapter 1. The text wants us to know that by the changing of these names, that heaven greatly has objected to Elimelech's behavior, which seemed right in his own eyes, but it was not right in the eyes of God. So what was it that Elimelech did? I want you to understand, dear people of God, Ruth chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that Elimelech was a mighty man of wealth, or that, that he had an, uh, excuse me, a kinsman named Boaz who was a mighty man of wealth. So we know that the family of Elimelech was a family of great wealth a family of great means and great substance. Secondly, we understand that Elimelech himself was a judge. And what the way he's going to now handle the crisis is he is not going to demonstrate leadership that is altruistic. He is not going to demonstrate leadership that is selfless. He is not going to demonstrate the responsibility that God has given him as a judge in the game. The Bible says in Judges chapter 16, you shall put officers and judges at your gates. That means also at your heart, there has to be judges, scrutiny skills to be able to know what we're thinking at what time and, and how we're thinking. All right. And we're seeing that he's using um, his wealth to get him out of the country and the reason he's leaving is because he doesn't want to share an ounce of it with anyone. He has the means to save lives. He has the ability to save little children who don't have anything to eat. He has the means to be able to sustain his brain.
brothers and sisters because they can purchase from other countries from that famine. They're going to be able to purchase even in Moab. They can go to Moab to buy their bread. They can go to any of the surrounding nations where there is no famine to buy the bread. But Elimelech and his family leave because they refuse to help the poor. They refuse to use that leadership in the way that God intended leadership to be in the body of Christ. Can I get a witness somewhere? Touch your neighbor and say it's not about us. So the scripture is showing us that Elimelech's deadly decision actually is what caused his death. Because the moment he came into Moab, he was dead. And we also understand that the deaths of his sons was also a result of his deadly decision. All right. Though his sons survived him 10 years, they took upon themselves and they married Moabitish wives. Meaning, the Bible forbids that, that no Moabite can enter the congregation of Israel even to the 10th generation, Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. But the, the young men married Moabite wives. Obviously, they converted to the God of Israel. It must have made them convert because Ruth is very much converted. But we are seeing that there is something there that also caused the judgment of God so that they died without seed, they died without children, they died 10 years later. They did not leave and go back. God was giving them 10 years to get it together. Go back before your wealth is squandered. Help the people of your land. Be responsible. Stand up. Step up to your responsibility and help the people of the land. But Elimelech's sons, Malon and Kilian, sickness and extinction did not go back. They stayed and tried to take care of themselves only rather than servicing the people of God. So the scripture wants to show us the character trait in the book of Ruth and that we need to see that this primary, one of the primary character traits in the book of Ruth is designed to teach us the concept of arevut, okay? Arevut means to take responsibility. The word arevut in Hebrew is the word responsibility, okay? So there is a saying among the Hebrews, okay? And there is a saying in the time of the Bible that comes from Tractate 39A Shavuot, Tractate Shavuot 39A. And that saying is, Klal Israel arivin ze bezet. What that means in Hebrew is, um, all of Israel, all of the nation of Israel takes responsibility one for another. It's a commandment. Okay, God is requiring that the nation of Israel take responsibility one for another. Okay, so it's not this, I'm going to be famous, leader, 
unto myself, get myself a name, get myself this and get myself that and use leadership um, as a pacifier to meet my needs that I didn't get met when I was growing up. Hello, somebody, can I get a witness? That someone realizes that responsible leadership means that there is a behavior, there is a deportment, there is a check, there is a responsibility that one has, that one does not do what is right in one's own eyes, but that one develops the skills of always bringing their heart before God to do what is right in the eyes of God. Can I get a witness somewhere? All right, so we see that the scripture is now going to tell us that after this deadly decision, I mean, everybody, if you've ever been to the Holy Land or ever known anything about village life, village life is not easy in the sense that everybody knows everybody's business, okay? Uh, everybody's related. Even today, you can go to Bethlehem, and all the people who live in Bethlehem are related, Okay, a few years ago when the West Bank was open, my husband and I used to go, and we used to take our Holy Land tours, people that came with us. We had friends that lived in the West Bank. And I'll never forget, it was the 1980s. And um, we had these very, very dear friends. They're still our dear, dear friends. And the, the, our friend would say, oh, there goes my cousin. And we say, wow, that's really nice. He has a nice cousin. Then five minutes later, another person would come by, and he said, oh, that's my cousin. I said, wow, gosh, she's got a lot of cousins. Okay, then we'd, we'd go, and I remember one time we, we gave a banquet for the mayor of Bethlehem years ago in 1987, and we brought together all of the heads of, um, we, we brought together just a lot of unity in the Middle East. Okay, so we brought people from all over the Middle East, and we honored the mayor of Bethlehem, and um, the, the man that was our good friend said, oh, yes, uh, the mayor, he's such a wonderful man. You will love him. He's my cousin, too. I started to think, wow, wait a minute. Everybody's his cousin, you know? Even people that drove on the streets, he was saying, there goes my cousin. I thought, my God, how many cousins does he have? And I realized the whole city was related one to another. Everybody was related, just about in Bethlehem, some way or another, which makes it, understandable that Naomi is going to have a heavy burden on her shoulders because if she ever decides to go back to Israel, which she's going to do, she's going to have to face a whole lot of humiliation. That humiliation and complete devastation that she's going to have to face is from her husband's deadly decisions. And we need to understand that her husband ignored and escaped the, the Arevut that was responsible, he was responsible for as a leader. And so therefore, as a leader, and as her being the leader, the wife of the leader, it's going to be doubly humiliating for her to go back to the country with no husband, no sons, and to go there to know that Obviously, it did not go well for them at all in, in Moab. 
that he died and the two sons died, there was no seed to follow, and that all of their wealth is totally squandered. And now Naomi is going to go back to Bethlehem like a pauper. This is a serious thing that she's going to have to face. Okay? But little did Naomi know that we serve a God, no matter how devastating this humiliation is, that no matter how great a loss she has undergone through losing her husband and losing her two sons, having no seed, having nothing, losing all of her wealth, losing all of her reputation, losing all of her influence, losing all of her status, that the God that she serves is able to turn his mistake into a miracle. I hope somebody understands what I'm talking about. Touch your neighbor and say the God that I serve is a God who is able to take my mistake and turn it into a miracle. Can I get a witness somewhere? Hallelujah. So I want to conclude tonight with two supernatural secrets that are given to us in the book of Ruth that teach us how God turns a mistake into, miracle, into a miracle in our life. If we follow this pattern, because this is not written so we know what happened, this is written for instruction. This is written to show us God's nature. God didn't just do this for Naomi. The, the, this is written so that we might know this is how God handles crisis in our life. This is how God wants to do for you. That when there is a mistake, when there's a devastating, humiliating circumstance in your life that you had no control over, or even if you did have control, something that you regretted, some decision that you cannot turn back the clock. God wants you to know that he is a God who can turn it around and turn a mistake and make it a miracle for his glory. Can I get a witness somewhere? All right. So the first supernatural secret of how God can turn a mistake into a miracle following Naomi's example, which is explicit in the text, is number one, did you realize that one decision, one decision, just one decision can release a destiny? Many of us are stuck, and we can't get out of the place that we're stuck because there's a decision that needs to be made. Maybe we're not even aware of it. Maybe we're not even aware that God is placing us in a position that we need to make a decision. That we have to make some choices in our life. And decisions that involve destiny are not always easy decisions. We're going to have to make some decisions that are going to cost us everything. But the question is, how much do we want the will of God in our lives. And so we realize that the first supernatural secret is one decision can release a destiny. Put your hands up right now and say, Holy Ghost, help me make the decision that's holding up my destiny. 
right now I'm asking you, show me right now, Holy Spirit, if there is a decision in my life that I need to make for my destiny to come forward. Help me make decisions that will release my destiny in Jesus' name. Can I get a witness somewhere? Let's watch and see how the text, let's look at the texture or the landscape of the text and see how it is. We've already gone through verses one through five. I want you to begin and pick it up in verse six because in verse six, we have a dramatic change going on. In verse six, we have a decision that Naomi is going to experience a destiny being released. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, verse six, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Verse 7, wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was. Hallelujah. She went forth out of the place where she was. And the Bible says that they might return from, uh, to the land of Judah. All right. First of all, we need to see that in verse 6, she's going to make a decision. This is not going to be an easy decision for Naomi. Okay, first of all, she's got to make the decision, I've got to go face those people. Okay, every person in Bethlehem and every person knows who my husband was. And they know exactly what my husband did. You know... Have you ever seen a person, known a person that was really, really, really wealthy in the papers, known on the news, everything, all of the nation knew who they were, they had a place of leadership, and then someone in the family caused a huge scandal. And it's going to cause other members of the family, even if they're innocent, to be affected by that scandal. I know I... One of my dear friends in ministry, dear, dear, dear friends in ministry, her father was a hugest preacher in the 1970s. He had the largest megachurch in the United States. And he made some very indiscreet decisions. And you know what? It didn't just affect him. It affected his children a thousand times worse than it affected him. And even to this day, this beautiful friend of mine, whose father had the largest megachurch in the 1970s, even to this day, it affected her because people turned on them, reputation, everything was known, it was out, it was public humiliation. And even the way certain members in the church handled it was very humiliating. Okay, so we can magnify that a thousand times when we think about Naomi, she's got to go back and face the humiliation, okay? So we're going to see that she's got to go back, she's got to face the humiliation, and we also need to see that in the next verse, she is going to make a decision, her daughters-in-law are going to go with her. Okay, look at verse 7. I want you to see it. As soon as she makes that decision, there's your release. Say this with me. As soon as I make some decisions that God is dealing with me about, then there will be a release into a new level 
of anointing and glory in my life. See, fear is the only thing that holds us back from making the decision. Fear is the only thing that stops us from going forward into the things of God that God has ordained for us. All right, so originally, the daughters-in-law, both of them, are gonna go with her. If we look at the word, the Bible tells us, and she went forth from the place from where she was with her daughter-in-laws with her, and they left, and and the um, that they might return from the country into the land of Judah. All right, so she left with her two daughters-in-law, but you're going to see that as she walks with these two daughters-in-law, she's gonna sense there's something here that's dead weight. Okay. I want you to know when you are getting ready to go into your future, there may be some people that started out with you that will not end up with you, okay? And this is where ministry and those who are real leaders in the ministry have to be able to be strong enough to endure the fact that there will be some who started out with you and who started walking with you, who really pledged allegiance to the cause, but fell out before the time or left because it wasn't God's will for them to go to the next level with you. There may be some people right now that God is speaking to, that there are people in your life that God is saying you just got to let it go because don't worry about how that relationship was in the past. Don't worry about you needing them for a security system. God is saying you got to go forward and do what I've called you to do and not think about the security system because where I'm taking you, they're not able to go. And as long as you allow them to be in your life. You are going to be held back from what God's got for you. Can I get a witness somewhere? This is exactly what happened to Naomi, her two daughters-in-law. She's walking, and as she's walking, she's sensing something. Something's not right with this picture. These girls cannot go with me because where I'm going, I'm sold out. I don't want them to go with me because they feel sorry for me or they feel obligated or there's some kind of superficial love that they're just serving me out of some kind of fake responsibility so that their conscience is cleared. That is not what Naomi was looking for. Right now, she's fighting for her life. She's fighting for, she's crawling back. You see, I got to tell you something. You may not be able to get back into God's will with all the stuff that you had before, but you may have nothing with you except God's word, but you have to be willing to go for the will of God, even if you've got to crawl back, even if you've got to walk back, even if you have to go through hardship and go it alone, God will bless you and he will take care of you. Can I get a witness somewhere? Touch your neighbor and say, if you, if you can't run, then walk. And if you can't walk, then crawl. 
Hello, somebody. Touch your neighbor and say, that came from Dr. King right there. Okay. He said, if you can't run, then walk. And if you can't walk, then crawl. But get to your dream. Can I get a witness somewhere? We're going to see one of those daughters-in-law who's going to just really bounce back into her true roots. She's going to start acting like Lot. Okay, because the children of Moab are the children of Lot. And Lot was someone who did not finish what God gave him to do. He fell out. He fell out in the middle of the call. Right at the time before all the breakthrough, God separated. God separated Lot. This was a huge hardship for, for emotionally for Abraham. The Bible doesn't go into the details of how Abraham felt because in nobility, because through God you can do anything. Through Christ, you, he can, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And so we're going to see that Orpah, who is a daughter of Lot, is going to be just like Lot. Lot fell out. The Bible tells us in Genesis 13, verses 6 through 14, that he chose to go the path and to pitch his tent towards Sodom. And we also see that Terah, the father of, of Abraham, didn't make it all the way to Canaan. He fell out also. And Abraham had to finish it. There are going to be people that, are, that you might as well face it right now. Not everybody who starts out with you is going to end up with you. Not everybody who says they love you really have the right intention of loving you. You might as well learn that right now and just be, love them anyway. Hello, somebody, can I get a witness? Not everybody who is for you is really for you. Hello? And so we can't stay stuck in a place like like Moab, because we feel obligated to people who have no clue what, what call is on our life, okay? She had to leave. And, and Orpah kind of, in a sense, also represents sometimes obligations that we feel that we have. She's taken her with her. There was no reason to take Orpah with her in the, in, at all. But she's taken her with her until she really realizes, i got to say goodbye to these girls. Okay? And there are sometimes we have a sense of false obligation toward people that God is saying, where you're going right now, you got to let that false sense, now not true obligation and true responsibility, because true responsibility is what this whole thing is about. But there are sometimes people who do not know your anointing. They do not know where God has called you. They do not know the call of God in their, your life. And so there is a, an un, unsanctified sense of obligation toward people that we shouldn't be obligated toward. We should be obligated toward God and doing God's will. That doesn't mean that we thrust our family aside by any means or that we... And in some way, evade our own responsibility. 
certainly that would be completely contradicting what this text is about. This whole text is about bearing one's responsibility and one's true leadership role. But Orpah could really, her, her, her love was only surface and emotional. She had no clue of what, was gonna, what Naomi was going to face. But when Naomi made the decision, and we, we won't look at those scriptures, but when you go home, you can read them. When she made the decision and she told the girls to go back, she was willing to face it alone. This took a tremendous amount of valor and bravery. This means she had no money because it's all gone. She had no source of walking through that desert. She's going to be completely vulnerable as a woman walking through the desert with all kinds of Amalekites and every kind of, of um, nomadic tribe that could have got her. She, she was so determined to do God's will that she was going to go back and not know where her income was going to come, not know how she was going to earn her living, have nobody that she could depend on, but she wanted to do God's will more than she wanted to do anything. And you know something? Let me just tell you something. When you get to the point, and when I get to the point, when we get to the point that there's nothing left, we have nothing, we don't have any security system to, de de to depend on but God, that is when God comes in with divine providence like you've never seen before. And he's got the whole thing managed. You see, Naomi didn't know what was going to happen a few months down the line. She had no idea that it was going to be nothing like what she expected it to be. That by doing God's will, she was going to get back a hundredfold what was taken from her. But was just testing her ability and her determination to go forward into his will. Can I get a witness somewhere? You see, it wouldn't be a test if you knew what was down the line. But this book is written to give you a little sneak preview of what's behind the curtain. Okay? This book was written just in case you lost so much hope and just in case you are completely at a point that you think this will never change, just in case you're at a point that you think God can never do it, this, this thing is so bad, it's been going on for years and it's never going to change and this must be the way my life is now. Just in case you started to believe that, there's a little something God wants to tell you. There's a curtain right here. It's a sneak preview of what God wants to give you. If you do what Naomi did, you are going to walk into a 100 Bold blessing. The book of Ruth is about a hundredfold blessing. It's not about a little blessing. You see, the God that you serve is about to surprise you. The God that you serve is about to turn your insides out. He's about to bless your socks off. I don't know if you understand what I'm talking about. This whole book is to show us God's nature. This whole book is 
to show us what God is like. Do you think God is going to let that little woman that he loved so much, who's willing to give up everything, even told her daughter-in-laws, go back. I face this thing by myself. I got some business I got to settle. I got to get back to Bethlehem and reclaim my territory. Hello, somebody. Touch your neighbor and say, neighbor, I got to get myself together and get back to reclaim my territory, to reclaim my promises, to reclaim my place, to reclaim my position, to reclaim my reputation, to reclaim my dignity. Can I get a witness? or not because someday eventually this wall that's tried to separate God's people from his goodness is going to break down that devil is a liar we serve a God of exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ask or think blessing we serve a God who will bless you so exceedingly that I has not seen neither has the ear heard nor has it into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Naomi, you didn't know, honey. Waiting over there, first of all, you had no idea how you were going to eat, live, or even the next day drink water. You didn't even know where your next glass of water was coming from. This little daughter-in-law of yours, I assigned her to you. I assigned her to take care of you because I knew you were going to go back to the land. So I assigned her to take care of you so that even when you came to the land and were going to be humiliated to pick up Laquette and Pea, already took care of that too. This little daughter-in-law of yours is going to wear a lot of hats. She's going to be your protector. She's going to be your comforter. She's going to be your wheat gatherer. She's going to be everything. She's going to take care of everything. Because it's me and the power of my providence because you made a decision to serve me unequivocally in the midst of being willing to give everything up and face humiliation to do my will. And you have no idea what's on the other side of that road. Sneak preview. One, you're going to get your entire reputation back because this daughter-in-law of yours is going to marry the most noble, not just rich, noble, man in Israel. And the elders at the gates are going to pronounce a blessing on her and say that she who was a Moabitess is going to be like Rachel and Leah. And that she is going to be like Tamar. That means
that she's not just going to have a nice reputation. She's going to have a place. And in the midst of all this, you're going to get a son back. You're going to be a mama again. She was just telling her daughters-in-law, don't wait for me. She's talking about Yibum. This was a law in Israel when it was a kindness, a law of kindness and chesed that was in the land of Israel that when there was a deceased person and they had a deceased man and he had no seed, it was the responsibility of the nearest of kin to perform Yibum for that person as an act of chesed. That hesed would be that the name of the dead person would not be out of the land of Israel because God cares about the name, the reputation, not for fame and fortune, but for integrity and honor. And so the law was that the nearest of Kim would redeem the property and the wife together and have seed but that the seed would be in the name of the person, bear the name of the person that was deceased, so that their name would not be lost in Israel and their property and their inheritance would go on forever. It was an act of chesed that God commanded in Israel to be done. So Naomi is saying, look, are you gonna wait around for me to get another husband? I'm too old. Are you going to wait for them to grow up and then marry them? Go, my daughters. Go away. Little did she know that when Ruth went with her, that Ruth was going to marry Boaz, the next of kin to Elimelech, and he was going to perform Yibum for Ruth. That the name of Machlon would be saved and that his inheritance would be still lifted up over the land and that Naomi would receive back honor and she would receive back reputation and she would receive back inheritance and that she would receive back the love and the compassion of all the people of Bethlehem and that her daughter-in-law would become the mother of the Davidic dynasty and that she would become nurse and caregiver to the son that Naomi, that, that, uh, that Ruth and Boaz would have and that she would feel again just what it was like to be a mother because she is going to be a mother again every single thing she lost is going to come back to her double because God is going to turn that mistake and turn it into a miracle. If it had not been for Elimelech's mistake, there would not be a King David today. I hope you understand what I'm talking about. Say this with me. If Elimelech not made the mistake, there would not be the miracle of King David. I hope you understand how God turns a mistake into a miracle. Thank you for joining us today. It is our prayer that this word broke bondages and will open doors for you. If you have never received Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, Invite him now to be your Lord and Savior and best friend. Repeat this simple prayer. 
Lord Jesus, come into my heart and be the Lord of my life. Wash me clean from all my sins. I accept you as my personal Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you soon. 